Welcome to the Simple Cyber Podcast, brought to you by Internet 2.0, where our cyber intelligence specialists talk with other domain experts about the steps you can take to keep your organization safe. Hello, and thanks for joining the Simple Cyber Podcast. We are excited to have on the episode today Robert Potter, Internet 2.0 co-CEO, and Jamie Tarabay from Bloomberg News to discuss the importance and impact of the media and cyber security. Jamie Tarabay has been a reporter and editor for more than 20 years and currently reports for Bloomberg covering cybersecurity in Asia. In addition to her reporting on the region, she's been involved in the global coverage of cyber attacks including solar winds, the JBS and Colonial Pipeline hacks and others. She joined Bloomberg in 2020. Thanks for joining us, Jamie. This is an interesting interview because usually when Internet 2.0 does interviews, it's the other way around. So thank you for uh, kindly agreeing to this interesting uh, experiment. It is an experiment. I'm happy to be here, I think, now, but ask me ask me when we're done how I feel. <laughs> Tell me about how you got into cyber and why it interested you. I think one of the things that has um, kind of, it's always been on the periphery of my work in some capacity, particularly once um, once I left Iraq and then I started covering a war on terror from the US and I worked at a digital news website called Vocative where our analysts and we had analysts who had come out of you know Israeli units and spoke Farsi and Hebrew and Arabic and Russian and they were able to spend a lot of time on the dark web looking at um, you know, just looking at ISIS forums, looking at the way they recruited. Uh, we saw a lot of, um, you know, whenever there were those horrible, that was a really terrible time when ISIS was, you know, the threat that everyone was dealing with. Um, you know, there were the, the, the executions in Syria. There was the Bataclan, you know, the horrific shooting attacks in, in, uh, in France. And, you know, these guys were using social media, they were using Telegram to recruit, they were using WhatsApp, they were using Facebook. Uh, and so I was always interested in the, the capacity for terrorists to be able to use these things as weapons. And, and it kind of maybe dates all the way back to, you know, during the 9-11 Commission when they reported that the hijackers used drafts that would use drafts in Yahoo Mail to communicate with each other. So they would write in the draft of an email and save the draft. So they never actually ever sent anything. So way back then, it was still using the internet for sneaky purposes uh, and, and really sort of watching it move into the mainstream has been uh, sort of the, the clarion call in a lot of ways to say this is actually quite serious. Um, and they have the, the capacity to do so much more because the tools that they have are growing and evolving and there are new ways to wage this kind of war every day. And, uh, and so that's kind of, I came at it from a security perspective, having spent a lot of time covering foreign policy, covering war, uh, and, uh, and I almost just feel like this is a natural progression, even though, you know, we're, we're, we're watching sort of hostilities in Ukraine, uh, what going from being in active war zones to, you know, a different landscape and a different sort of war theater uh, makes a lot of sense in terms of the progression of how I've been sort of focusing my my career, basically. Interesting. So if you're a, like, if you take the media cybersecurity relationship in Australia at the moment, there's, it, it's very uneven and it's still pretty new. So like when I started doing cyber we used to get our news from reports that would come out like once every two months from one of the big vendors right but now since then there's people like yourself and others who are doing you know amazing work doing cyber security journalism on its own how do you mm. think uh it all kind of fits together and where doesn't it fit together i think it's a growing awareness and i think that that comes from not just you know it's sort of and it, in a lot of ways it kind of mirrors the the debates that we have in Australia regarding other kind of national security and business interests, right? I mean, there was a time when 
um, you know, the business community wanted like a really good relationship with China for all sorts of reasons. And then the national security community was like, wait a minute, hang on, this is something that we really need to pay attention to. And once the government started to get involved and start talking about state-sponsored attacks, then it sort of became an issue that was a national sort of point of discussion. And then, of course, you had COVID, you had ransomware attacks, you had um, all of the DDoS, all of the, the cyber attacks that completely pummeled Australian businesses uh, last year uh, for, for, for myriad reasons. And I think that has really sort of taken cyber reporting from this niche, you know, I don't want to say fringe, but I'll say fringe uh, kind of reporting to suddenly everyone is talking about cyber. And you saw that really when uh, Biden met with Putin in Geneva in June last year, and they talked about cyber attacks. This had come off the back of the Colonial Pipeline and, and JBS and suspected Russian hackers were behind those. Um, but, you know, I don't remember that cyber attacks were an issue between heads of state in this way. Um, like. That, that, that it had sort of reached that level of importance that they were talking about it, not just sort of their second tier, third tier folks. Um, and so I think the more that we talk about it as a very real threat, the more that our lives are actually online, uh, the more uh, hopefully we can get a lot more people trying to get a lot more sunlight on this, uh, this issue. I think that's really important. I'm very happy to see more people getting involved and and there's some there's been some great reporting uh from some some australian journalists uh on on a lot of these issues so uh the more the better and you know hopefully just continue to be really responsible and um so very you know matter of fact about it i think that's the most important thing so I, I, I look at how cyber is discussed in america and how it's discussed in australia and it's discussed very differently which which way do you prefer and how would you, if you could make one more like the other, how would you do it? Or what well, would you do? How, how would you, I mean, I haven't been like, I haven't been in either place for a while and my focus has been elsewhere. <laughs> so how would you describe the conversations being held well, in this place? I'll put it this way. If you're a cybersecurity person in Australia uh, and you're young and you're in your mid, you know, you've just started your career uh, and you're working in government, you're probably not going to talk to a journalist. Uh, and a, there is this kind of apprehension, apprehension in cybersecurity to even talk to a journalist, particularly, in, and I'd say that apprehension is probably even more in Australia than it is in some other places where, you know, being an advertising person is kind of something, you're pretty comfortable doing that if you're one of the major cyber vendors like CrowdStrike or Mandiant or something like that. But in Australia, you know, we don't talk to journalists that often. Uh, and you're probably going to get pitched 50 times, and I apologise for this uh but like what what why do you think cyber journalists are scary to cyber security analysts and 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 what does that mean for how we kind of build better bridges between communities i i, I want to believe that it's not just cyber that that there's this issue with communication i don't think that i i don't think it stops there i think it's politics i think that there's there's not the relationship between journalists and sources per se uh, in Australia as as you would see in the US. And I think a lot of that is um, in the US is much more turnover in administrations. People are politically appointed and then once they leave, uh, they're much more willing to speak. I can have a conversation with a former cabinet minister in Australia and he still won't go on the record with me because of the Crimes Act, because of the Secrets Act, because of the Intelligence Act, and and you know, sort of the 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 legacy of these, you know, I mean, don't forget we had AFP raids on you know on Annika Smethurst's house and the ABC offices. So the message that the government sends is this this you know it's a you could spend jail you can spend time in jail if you end up talking to a reporter um you know so that's not exactly conducive to an environment of free exchange of ideas or whistleblowing whistleblowing is something that takes a lot of courage and a lot of you know data and evidence and and that's that you know when you make it difficult for people 
when you when you when you when you sort of make examples of the media and and put out the risk that your emails, your phone messages, your contact and communication with these reporters could expose you, land you in jail. It's not really going to um to, 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 so I don't think it's just a cyber reporter issue. We don't have a bill of rights in Australia, you know. Yeah. These, the, we don't have the sort of protections that allow us to be able to pursue um, these causes um, freely, and 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 that's that 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 is a huge issue, and it allows the government, whichever government, I'm, I don't particularly care, but it allows the government to not have to actually say anything. And, and it means the entire country is on a need to know basis. And and that's frustrating, not just for us, but I think that should be frustrating for, for voters and for taxpayers and for people who are not getting all the information uh, that they need. And, and you know, then, then that's kind of the biggest issue here. And you don't feel like there is accountability because there's no transparency. Interesting. But you've reported extensively in China and the Middle East. Uh, do you think it, how do you think cyber adds to those conversations of understanding China or, or the Middle East? Uh, and it, do you think it's easier to report from outside or inside? Well, I haven't been able to report in China. Uh, we actually have a colleague who's been detained by Chinese authorities for over a year. Uh, so we are hoping desperately to hear from Hayes Fan and have someone sort of tell us what is happening with her. And, and you know and and when she might be released uh, it is increasingly difficult to report in China and you've seen the exodus of reporters uh, American reporters Australian reporters British reporters um, because the, the the circumstances of reporting in China are becoming increasingly difficult um, I have I lived and worked in Egypt uh, and that was during the Mubarak years and uh, you know that is a very intelligence heavy state just like the syrian uh, administration under bashar assad uh, so um you kind of um you understand i mean at the same time we were able to report quite freely uh but you know i think they saved their uh unhappiness for local reporters and and the ones who had sort of the most to lose the ones who had family uh local connections um, I, I, I'm not sure how cyber plays into those roles, though. Maybe you can elaborate on that a little. Well, I mean, we can study things externally, right, through digital evidence in a way that when we don't, as a, there's nothing's as good as a substitute for a human source, but, you mm. know, we can explore things externally uh, and, and get a look into things that we otherwise wouldn't see. And uh, it may be that I think that some of the best reporting on China comes from cybersecurity journalists because, you know, they're not dependent on a human source or or getting the right answer at the, you know, the daily Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, you know, press conference in Beijing. Uh, yeah. But but I'd pivot to that. So, like, what do you think of the culture of cybersecurity? I, I'll give you a, an example, right? So there's a, in any field, and this is true because I studied North Korea, I studied, you know, studied China, there's a tension, right, between people who are on the ground expertise in a country and people who study, who are far away and study externally. And I've seen mm -hmm. people make mistakes in attribution based on these sorts of technical, with a lack of language knowledge and things like that. Uh, I mean, the cybersecurity community in America can be quite an interesting place when you report a story. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, the, the communities of practice on China, uh, like sonologists and things like that, and the business community all have very different views on China. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel that cyber gets received as a voice in those communities? And is our voice a respectful one? Oh, I don't. I mean, my goodness, that's a that's a that's a big question, Rob. I think that when it comes to I mean, cybersecurity analysts and in the industry versus cybersecurity reporting are probably two different things. I know that when I go to cybersecurity threat intel analysts, um, I don't go to just one person. I don't go to just one firm. Um, we have to verify, verify, verify. And, and you know, I, I what I do think, where I think the similarities might be is that, um, you know, you're as good as your word. You know, as a reporter, we have nothing to recommend ourselves other than our, our body of work and how we treat our sources and 
and the way that we we do our job. And you know, if I burn a source, um, then that person will never speak to me again. If it's a close knit industry, they will tell everyone, do not speak to this person. They're unreliable and they will torture you. And I feel like um, if I go to an analyst and they also tell me the wrong thing or tell me something that's completely misleading, then I'm going to say the same thing to not only to my colleagues, but to other cybersecurity people that I've worked with. So I think in that respect, we try to keep each other honest, I want to hope. But I also feel like there probably could be more support of each other in the industry. I think that there's a lot of competition and I get it, but I also think that there could be respectful competition. And it's a little frustrating when you spend time reporting things that you have verified so completely and to have people dismiss it, probably without reading the story is a little frustrating, probably without reading the report. Uh, because of, you know, a competitive nature, and that's a little sad to me. I find that disappointing, and it's so different to the atmosphere of, uh, you know, the, the people that I spend a lot of time reporting on conflicts with. We're so supportive of each other, particularly I've got so many friends who are in Ukraine right now that I'm thinking of um, and hoping that they stay safe, and you kind of want to see them succeed and see them do well, and I'd like to see more of that in the cybersecurity industry, frankly. Yeah, I think you're talking about a very specific story there, right? Uh, Not necessarily. Well, <laughs> let's let's talk about that one, right? Because uh, Supermicro was a really interesting story, uh, and I and we've had that too when we've done stories, right? So we did a story um, on um, the or to take the CCP list, for example, where we we disclosed uh, not names of people on it, but immediately that list was accused of being fake. Uh, even though the digital evidence was that the original download command was still in the metadata of the file and, you know, very quickly. But Synologists were really not comfortable with us introducing evidence that they weren't introducing. Uh, and there's, you know, a real kind of tension around supply chain compromise, right? Right. <laughs> All right. Uh, what What do you think we... So, so that, that gets me to my next question is... What do you think that journalists are equipped uh, with the right tools and education to do cyber? And what gaps do you think there are? Gonna, what do you think the next generation of cyber reporting looks like? I mean, look, I when I began this beat, one of my sources said to me, the really great thing about cyber is that everyone's still learning. And I think that's still true. I think that this is, I think there's so much that's happening. There are so many new iterations of, of everything that you've seen 10, you know, 20 years before, we're seeing so much of it. And, and I have to say, um, I am incredibly grateful to my sources who spend so much time walking me through so many things that I, I'm not, I don't code. I don't know how to do these things. This is something that is not my expertise, but I've had people spend hours explaining everything from how to how you know money gets tumbled in the blockchain wallet to you know the intricacies of a ddos attack to all kinds of all kinds of other things and i am incredibly grateful because they do spend the time uh you know walking me through these things and and of course because we have to explain this to our readers and we have to do this in a way that is as non-technical as possible so you know it's it's they're not just doing it to help me, they're doing it to to explain to our readers why it's important and why it matters and 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 just how complex it is. And you know, so I think if you are a cyber reporter, if you're starting out and if you're lucky enough to talk to people who are willing to speak to you and help you learn, then um, then that's my biggest like I still do it every day. I, I call people every day. I continue to build sources every single day. Uh, that is, as a reporter, you're as good as your sources. Um, that is you're going to get 50 that. pitches now, and, you know, I apologize for that. So, Sorry, uh, well, I, no, if I get, no, let me get the pitches. I am, okay, okay I'm, I'm, I'm going to get all the grads now. My number is up on my Twitter account. Like, I just, because I do, look, I think that, I think what's important about cybersecurity is making people understand how it impacts them. And I think a lot of people still don't think, even after all this time, that any of this matters to them. So 
and, and like you know, all news, all, all politics is personal. If you make the person understand how it impacts them directly, that can go some way to growing their own awareness and also their interest in doing something about it. Right? I mean, that's kind of the point. Yeah, absolutely. So that gives gives us a really avenue, an interesting avenue to go down. Right? It's because cyber uh, doesn't always get the pride of place uh, when a cyber story goes up. Uh, I mean, we see that, yes, there is a cyber dimension to the negotiations between the United States and Russia, uh, but it's a, but progress on cyber issues is certainly a second order issue to not invading countries. Uh, and cyber people sometimes, you know, don't like that news, but yeah, it's probably true. Uh, and intellectual property theft in China, for example, really great example of something that happens all the time but there's so much trade and you think maybe there are people that just don't want to talk about that uh in the private sector because they're doing so much business with china and the intellectual property theft is sort of like a rounding error so Hmm. as long as we're selling rocks and and metal to china it doesn't matter if they're going through our universities for their best ideas you know uh and and when you that's also uh pretty true at the university level too right where foreign students can kind of create a reason not to talk about cyber. I mean, ANU was famously hacked by an unattributed cyber actor that probably comes from a red flag to the north. Uh, you know, and so was our Bureau of Meteorology. Uh, do you think that cyber stories can be inconvenient stories? Well, you know, I had this uh, situation last year when I was reporting on Australia being sort of at the mercy of relentless cyber attacks from China as the government continued to call for an independent probe into the origins of COVID. And, uh, you know, the Monash University has a cyber research department. And so I asked them, actually, I was pitched. There you go. So their their spokesperson came to me and said, if you ever want to talk to anyone in our our, our cyber research department, please let me know. And I wrote back uh, afterwards. And I said, great, is there anyone who can talk to me about Chinese hacking? And, and the, the word was, no, they're not comfortable discussing China with you. And how can you be a, a, a researcher in the cyber research department of Monash University and not discuss China? And I thought that was so remarkable that I included it in my story because I think it's really important to be able to show why, why, why are you censoring yourself? This is a university, it's an academic institution where censorship is is against the grain. So why are you not discussing this? Why are you, are you only going to talk about Iranian hacking? Like, it's just, I don't understand. So I think that that merits a closer look. There's a lot of, uh, I understand that there's a relationship with foreign students and the money, but there also has to be independence. And I think this has been one of the biggest issues that Australia has had to face uh, in the last couple of years in particular, in terms of how much economic pain are they prepared to stomach in, you know, um, at the cost of, you know, potentially, you know, at the, at the cost of sovereignty, right? And we're watching this manifest itself in different ways, in different aspects of, like, you know, different sectors, different industries. But I think it's a really valid question. And and I and 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 obviously it's a political question now. We're watching the elections. We're watching uh, the the conversations around you know WeChat accounts and you know Asia directors getting up and having conversations and you know Manchurian candidates and things like that. So I think that I it would you know I there there has to be a conversation about it and it has to be transparent. And I and I and and unfortunately. It also needs to be nonpartisan. And I'd like to see that happen. I don't think it will, not in an election year. Uh, but uh, but these are real issues. These are existential issues. Um, and and while people are while, while money is involved, that's always going to be uh, tricky. Yeah, I completely agree. And cyber can be an inconvenient thing. Where do you think the the big things in cyber we're not talking about? What do you what do you think they are? Oh. Um, my well, as you you you've probably heard me gripe many many times, I think it's really difficult uh, to have people um, sustain attacks and not want to talk about them afterwards. And you know, there's obviously um, people who pay ransoms, 
um, you know, the, there's a very high rate of them getting attacked again and having to get having to pay again. Uh, you know, there's a sort of an exodus of C-suite executives, and and you know, it's just that there's a whole slew of things that are the ripple effect of having paid a ransom and after a ransomware attack. Uh, but but this is all sort of being kept under wraps, and I would like to see a little more sunlight on that. Um, but doesn't the media not help that, right? I mean, if I rob, if you rob a bank, right? Uh, mm. with a gun. You don't blame the bank manager. No, but, the- but what I will say is, um, how did he get in, right? What kind of security did you have? You know, did, did you was there any kind of trip alarm or anything? I'm not going to sit there and say it's your fault that this person came in to rob you. Everyone's going to, like, I mean, a bank robber is going to rob a bank. But did you do anything? And And how did he get in? And I think that's the thing. It's like, we, you know, and I, this is why I liken it to terrorism in a way. If you, if you, if you give away the tools of the trade, you are messing with their trade craft, and they won't be able to use the same tools against someone else. Going That's forward. true. But the, whenever, like, one of the ways government handles this, right, is they de-identify the victim, and they say a defense company has been hit by, say, take the APT41 report that came out. Mm. Uh, was put out by the US government and it detailed a number of victims by type, an Australian defence company, a foreign service institution. Now the foreign service institution, everyone identified very quickly as the Indonesian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, Now, but as soon as that report comes out, first question I get from usually a dozen or so journalists is who's the defence company? That isn't a question of whether or not they were mature or not. Or they just got slaughtered by APT41, which is the tip of the triangle. Of you know, that like like you can be as prepared as you like, but if some guy throws a bunch of O-days at you or something like that, you're not gonna go. You know, but the story isn't off it's the, the bad guy is obscured. We give them fancy names that you don't want to say on television, they're so terrible, you know, like wizard spiders and you know, and uh Lazarus groups. They're not it's not North Korean RGB kicked that guy's door in, you know, like it's. Right, so we should say he, that's how he got in. He kicked the door in. Yeah. We don't, say, we don't say they threw a bunch of zero days at them. We don't say any of that stuff. We say there was this attack on this target. We don't say they got in through a phishing campaign. But if public anything. embarrassment didn't work, Conti wouldn't have a website, you know. It's not like, you and I are going to, we're going to talk about this and we're going to disagree about this. That's a good thing. That is a good thing, right? Look, I am I am not going to sort of dismiss those objections as though they mean nothing. They're absolutely, this is the biggest reason why, you know, we don't see this kind of disclosure. We don't see this kind of transparency. And I get it. But at the same time, I think that we, the more information, no one's ever died from getting more information, right? I mean, no, I but careers have ended pretty quickly on it, though. Sorry, what? There's a reason why CISOs are, you know, referred to as the chief internal sacrifice officer, right? Because the moment there's a hack, the you give the guy no budget, he gets hacked. And there's a joke going, right, that the CISO at the yeah. Bureau of Meteorology is the same CISO at the ANU. There's a joke going that, you know, China doesn't hack the Bureau, doesn't hack the ANU, just hacks him, you know, like... Uh, yeah. And so, like, embarrassment is a component of cyber, right? We bl- There is a victim element to it that's really problematic because... Yeah. Like, that's why Conti does media relations. That's why they went from having a dark web website to having an actual website yeah. where they name and they put a little progress bar on how much of your data they've leaked since they got right. you. I don't think that if you come out and you say, look, you know, we, it's, it's classic terrorism. You have to be lucky every day. They just have to be lucky once. Okay? Like, I stand by that. And you can say we were really unlucky we're, we're doing everything we can. This is how they got in. We're trying to circumvent it. We have to do everything again from scratch. We have to turn all, all the systems off and do manual backups or get everything out on a piece of paper and have people like in the Waikato Hospital District to come in with their appointments on pieces of paper. You know, we will do whatever it is that we have to do. Bear with us. And I it will still like, go in the Daily Mail the next day. Okay, but we're not the Daily Mail. No, 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 but media is an institution. There's a little bit more than just Bloomberg's amazing reporting, right? And we're talking about, you know, the interactions between systems here, right? So, like, there is an element to this where the where the journalist chases the ambulance, not 
not the not the getaway car. You know, I've been on both sides of the table, right? I've been, I've I've sat with journalists during very complex conversations with victims, right, where we can get to the bottom of things. And I've actually facilitated those conversations, you know, with universities after they've been hacked, for example. Uh, But I've also been the defensive media person when, you know, you've got 20 minutes, you've got my print deadline is 5 p.m., you know, answer the following questions about how you got hacked and you get no context on how it gets reported, right? So there's a thing that happens in the industry where as there's more cyber journalists and there's also more cyber journalists rolling around that are they're more than happy to pick up the talking points of the bad guy, right? About, you know, look how embarrassing it is. I got this guy, he should have paid the ransom, you know? Okay, and? Well, you, like you can go on the dark web. I'm forum. not telling you that all journalism is good. I don't know. I don't know. You that there is uh, that you can never have enough information. That's true. But what about uh, the fact that ransomware groups now have basically media relations people doing stuff? Well, well, you know, ISIS had a media team. Yeah. It's just, isn't that interesting though? Isn't that like that? It, that's it, not it, something that we would have seen coming five years ago. Right? I, 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 you know, I disagree. I disagree. I think that there, you know, I think that this is just the latest iteration of of a very old story. Interesting. So, so what advice would you give to someone that's in that situation? Like they've been hit by ransomware. Uh, okay. And you want them to be more open, and you're talking like the people who listen to our podcast are almost all users of. They're not. It, 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 it's almost all like people who run companies who are who pray not to have a bad day, and right. they've had their bad day. And they get and how do they do the communications? How do they how do they do that right so that you get what you need in terms of actually describing what's going on? I mean, I just pump it under the carpet. Right. Uh, how do you do it right? Well, actually, I mean, I think that's an interesting sort of idea of making it as part of your incidents response, right? I mean, how do we how do we? I mean, if they're not even just report answering to the media, they have to answer to boardrooms. If they have to answer to you know, you know, the management, they have to be able to say, this is what happened. And, um, you know, and it's, it, yeah, that it, I, and I think that, and I think that's, that, that also speaks to the relationship with management and the board. Like, you know, I spoke to um, someone who I can't say who, but he was saying to me that if he had gone to his board and said, I need a $250,000 Akamai system to protect our system from X and X and X, the boy would have laughed him out of town, uh, you know, because in a lot of ways it's it's there's it's such an amorphous like it's this thing that that you can't sort of quantify. You can't. It's not a tangible. It's just you can spend so much money protecting defenses without anything ever happening, and then it's a line item in your budget, and you think, well, why am I paying all this money for? Or why don't I just get the basic package because that one seems fine, right? And 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 so I think the more um, business community minds are sort of aware and receptive to the prospect of investing in actual cyber protection, uh, the less the CISOs will feel like they're on their own on an island, marooned and like stuck trying to fix this by themselves. So I actually think that it it, it they're not going to, they're going to be embarrassed to talk because they're going to be embarrassed to talk to anybody, not just to us. And I, so I, I think that's all quite interconnected. Yeah, interesting. So when you're like, because like everyone is terrified of a cyber incident when they're, when they're sitting in a corporate. I mean, I, I see it differently. I drive an ambulance, so I look at traffic slightly differently. So I see some pretty high risk behaviors out there uh, that are really interesting. Um, but if you're a, if you're a journalist, what's an example of someone who managed an incident really well? Who do you think did it best? Telenor Norway. Mm-hmm. They they were so, and I don't know if this is a Scandinavian thing, but God bless them because they were they they shared everything, including the ransom letter uh, when they had the DDoS attack, uh, and it did it did put them out for a few hours. But you know they were quite happy to explain what happened to them, like where they were, how they dealt with it, you know, how long it took them to deal with it. And, uh, and you know, um, and that it wasn't the first time that this had happened to them either. So, you know, I just, the openness with which they spoke to me on the record about everything, I just thought was so refreshing. Because I also just think that it's important for people to see 
that they're not the only ones that this happens to, that it happens to the big guys as well as the little guys. And, 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 and there's no, I know that you can say, oh, there's no shame in it. There's no reputational damage. Obviously there's always some blowback. And I, I just think that it's part of how you manage a crisis. And that's got to factor into incidence response. It's got into in, in, factor into how you how you manage your crises anyway. This is one crisis, kind of crisis. How are you doing with other crises in running your business? What do you think the media industry and cyber is going to next? What's the next big change that's coming to what you're doing? Because you've you've obviously it was previously just cyber blogs, right? It was like literally it was us on the BAE blog with the going up against the Mandiant blog and we do reports and then occasionally a mainstream journalist would write about it in a way that wasn't completely obscure, you know, and and then, you know, Wired launched a platform and now the New York Times has a team. You have a team at Bloomberg, you know, you really, uh, you've got an actual team of journalists who just do cyber stuff. Yeah, um, a great team. You do. And so what's next? Where do you think it goes next? I, you know, I we are spending, we're very excited. We actually have a new person arriving next week and um, one more person or, so two women are joining the team in the next couple of weeks and I could not be more excited. Um, there is so much to do. Um, we're obviously looking at supply chain. We're looking at infrastructure. We're looking at uh, nation states and, uh, you know, we're looking at surveillance and AI. And don't look, technology is terrifying to a lot of people. Privacy is a big concern to a lot of people. Theft is a big concern to a lot of people. There are so many different areas. But in terms of mediums and platforms of how this is, we're doing everything, you know. Um, I just, I'm not really sure. I think, I think, I think the, the, the day of blogs is over, I'm afraid, Rob. You know, you're getting a lot more visibility now than you would have before. So, um, so yeah, I just uh, I, I just think we have such a big year ahead of us, and I'm super excited about a lot of the things that we're working on, and I'm really happy with the team that we have. We have a great team. So, what about the threats? What do you think they're going to do next? Where do you think the trend goes from what you're seeing from the media side of things? Dude, that's your job. Yeah, but you get an opinion. I mean, I think well, for me, uh, because I like to look at things on the geopolitical level, I, I see the trends that are happening. Obviously, we have a lot happening in Russia, Ukraine. We have a lot happening in China. Uh, you know, Taiwan is going to be very interesting this year. Uh, North Korea is continues to be very interesting this year. Um, you know, and so all of, all of the those sort of machinations are always going to be very fascinating for me. And I, I love focusing on that stuff. It's, it's like kind of like my happy place in a lot of ways. Um, the, 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 the blow, the, the sort of the, the growth of crypto um, and the sort of the, the ransomware being able to make money through crypto now is, has just, I can't even, I'm trying to find a way to describe how it has accelerated, um, you know, sort of this, this method of, you know, cyber attack and, you know, cyber criminality. It's, it's, it's only going to get worse. I don't see it getting any better. Um, it, so I, I think that that's just going to get more ambitious, uh, more widespread. And unfortunately, we're all going to have to figure out how to, do, how to defend against something like that, you know, and, and, and in some some, I that's not my expertise, so please don't ask me that question. There are no doves in cyberspace, are there? There are no what what? There are no doves in cyberspace. Everyone's a hawk. Um, is that right? I think so. I think that everyone's a gradation of a hawk. I never got. There's no one that's going. Yeah, things are gonna get better. You know. Oh, <laughs> like, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah, no one yeah. saying that. We're going to oh. fix this thing. We're going to get the ransomware gangs. We're going to put them all in prison. They're stuffed, oh. you know, and the Chinese ABT, we're coming for you next with our unilateral amazing wow. global power. Like that's when, like we all, and no one believes that we can sit down and negotiate our way out of it. We don't think that there is some deal we're going to get with Putin where he's going to go, you know what, Reval, Conti, just get out. You've had your yeah. day. You, you live well, in, you live in Latvia now. You, you know, you're going to have to retrain. You're going to be doing software development, you know, like, yeah. 
I mean, it's going to be challenging because, you know, there are so many parts of this that are still unregulated, right? And, uh, and, and, and you still have governments um, and it's it's an interesting sort of game that they play because they say, well, show us the evidence. And if we show you the evidence, you'll know how we found you and you will try something new. So it just becomes this little, you know, game. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know, I just I find it endlessly fascinating. Let's go um, to the question that China would ask. <laughs> you ready? What? Why does no one report on what we do? Oh, here we go. I'm in the middle of writing a story about this right now. Yeah, because it's topical, right? Because, like, like literally I woke up this morning and I had an alert from Twitter from Zenoa where they tagged me in a story because they're trying to embarrass the NSA about using, to, you know, tools that leaked in 2013. And they may they're obviously getting used by other threat actors. But, you know, we probably use – the NSA probably used them on some people themselves at some point, that, you know, probably in China and probably in their government. It's almost certainly not stealing intellectual property or money, but like we we do hack them. We also primary like the we never talk about the the largest amount of offensive cyber, which we, you know, which is undertaken by the Five Eyes, which is almost in, you know, which is disproportionate, which is almost heavily, you know, pushed into counterterrorism. Uh, we we obviously do quite a lot of cyber and counterterrorism. Uh, you know, some of those attacks were more likely were disrupted by large software companies in the United States who didn't like us, you know, didn't like intelligence agencies of using their platform and decided that they had a say in this. I don't understand why, but they, they got one. Uh, you know, China would ask, why don't we report on what, you know, ASD hacks, you know, NSA hacks? Why don't we talk about that? I mean, I would love China to talk to us about all of those things. If they can tell, if they can share, I mean, the US will issue indictments and describe in some detail what went down. They'll name people. You know, I'd love, you know, I'd love to see a similar action from Beijing, um, you know, and the reason. Well, I'm less enthusiastic about it, obviously, because they already called me the black end of the five eyes, right? So, like, there's got... <laughs> but, like uh, but there is, like, we do offensive cyber too, and it's very hard to report on that, right? I mean, I, I yeah, because it's, it's sort of almost Cold War-esque, right? It's, it, you know, you, you are talking about how spies work. And uh, and the methods that they use, and normally, if you ever found out, I guess they would get rid of you very quickly. So I'm um, just, you know, I mean, just based on all my John Le Carré knowledge, right? Um, but the, you know, look, I I think it's it's not for nothing that U.S. that Russia and China um, continually get named by the U.S. Uh, as um, you know, the, being behind nation state cyber behavior uh, but we never hear the russians or the chinese say the same we know it's going on um but i think in a lot of ways it's also a face-saving exercise they never want to admit that they've been hacked and uh and that's that's for their domestic audiences as much as it is for the rest of us but china and russia are both terrible at cyber defense if you say so can you tell us more about that well, they are like they're, you know, they they're much more dependent on surveillance systems for the operation of their national governments than we are. You know, they they there are things that they have to do because they're authoritarian that expose them to significant weakness in cyberspace. That we don't have those vulnerabilities. So, like, if you switch off the camera systems in Sydney, we stop issuing fines. You switch off the camera system in Xinjiang, you might lose the province. You know, so like the there there are different things about cyber defense that apply to authoritarian countries, right? Uh, so, and they have more to lose by, if we ever zeroed out the game, they'd lose immediately because they need those controls, whereas we don't, you know. I can live without internet banking for a week, but I don't think they can live without surveillance. Yeah, but moving on from there, but like, uh, do you think that China's gonna become more forthcoming discussing cyber attacks by the West on them? Because it certainly looks that way. I mean, I, that would be great. Uh, you know, today's the story that you're mentioning today is a maybe that's an example of of a greater opening. Uh, they are certainly being asked about it more now than they ever were, uh, and they, their response is always China is a victim of cyber attacks too. So it would be great if they were a little more uh, descriptive about those attacks and uh, and. And, you know, the, the thing that you're referring to discuss something that happened in 2013, something that happened a little more recently might be might be might be 
you know, I'd love to see something like that. You know, I, I mean, it just obviously just, you know, what we want doesn't matter. Um, but if if they're going to sort of ratchet up the 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 rhetoric on on this issue, uh, and and they're going to do it by citing actual examples, that would be interesting. I wonder how you and and your friends would feel about that, Rob. Probably uh, we'd be surprised if we were discovered. That uh, uh, well, that would be interesting, right? Because then if they find you. Then they'd have to, well, not that we do it, but uh, if no, they uh, if they found activity on their networks, uh, I mean, one of the ways they know that they've been found is because that gets disclosed, right, in a threat intelligence report. I mean, it's been hugely not useful. So a great example of a not useful threat report was one I read a number of years ago, written by a journalist about offensive cyber that was done on North Korea. Uh, and they actually listed, and it was done by activists, it wasn't done by a nation state. Uh, where they actually found that the activist was launching attacks from his house in in South Korea, and they actually gave his house in the in the in the story. I mean, South Korean journalists aren't that great when it comes to like protecting privacy, but that was a really interesting story where they talked about activists hacking into a really totalitarian place as part of their campaign. I thought that was really fascinating. But that let me. Uh, but non-state actors obviously a part of so. But let's talk about the thing that's other really interesting is the rise of the not superpower hacking groups like Ocean Lotus in Vietnam or India coming online now with some really, really significant offensive cyber capability, Pakistan too. Uh, do you think, I, I, I think those are completely neglected topics. I 100% agree with you. I One of my favourite stories out of um, the whole COVID era was the Vietnamese cyber unit that hacked the Wuhan um, Municipal Council in January 2020 because it had a bunch of its people uh, at a conference in Wuhan and uh, and they flew all those people out, brought them back, locked down the entire village and then uh, closed off flights to China as they sort of waited out what then became, you know, the pandemic. And you're right, they're small, but they're focused and uh, I just thought that was such a brilliant uh, piece of um, piece of work, basically. I mean, I, I also India India is going to be a big story this year. I think the tensions with China continue to grow, and you know, I'd like to see what they're doing post Mumbai Electrical Grid being shut down, post National Identification Database being hacked. Uh, you know, and whether they're, you know, what they're, I mean, I'd love to go to India. I really hope I can travel there. I hope I can just start, my job is Asia. It would be nice to be able to start traveling to Asian countries this year. Interesting. And, but what, I got to ask you one last question. Mm. What do you think of the Singaporean approach to cybersecurity? I'm actually having coffee with the cybersecurity agency folks next week. So they're very approachable. They're good communicators. Uh, do you think we should be more? We should communicate more like the way Singapore does. In look, I think one of the things that they actually did do recently, which is worth looking into, and I, I might actually try to look into it a little bit, is they had the OCBC phishing scam, where like nine million dollars or so were stolen from customer accounts. Not only did those customers have to get that, they actually got that money reimbursed, um, but then they've actually, you know apprehended about a dozen people uh, as being responsible for or suspected of being responsible for this. And I, I, I'm, I'm curious about how they managed to do it. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I'd, li I'd like to be able to find that out. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to be working on that story. Let me just broadcast that out to everybody. Um, but, uh, you no, know, but that's interesting because when you hybridize SWIFT records uh, with cyber evidence from, you know, you know, payment redirects and, you know, suspicious logins, you, like, until they transit into Bitcoin, it's actually pretty easy to track the money, right? Because you've got 24-hour delay times on, on international transactions. Well, you can contrast that with what happened in the Philippines. The teachers' union got hit. Yeah. Their, you know, life savings were stolen from these people's accounts. They're not getting that money back, you know. So, um, so so what they're doing here has has you know is is different to that i also found 
frankly, the conversation around the contact tracing app in Singapore to be the most transparent out of all of the contact tracing app conversations the world has had, particularly when you compare it to Australia and the utter opacity of the government when it came to sharing any details about the way the app was constructed, about all of the glitches and the bugs that were constantly being um, pointed out by some of our very good analysts in Australia repeatedly. And those things took months, months to get um, fixed if they were fixed at all. Uh, you know, so um, so I actually, and, and when the Singaporeans went, around, went about it, I thought it was super interesting. They were very open about it. They welcomed uh, contributions to people and and you know they've and they've been very like they've said data gets de deleted after 30 days we haven't seen an expiry date from from other countries and you know and we're seeing actually more invasive measures being put into a lot of these contact tracing apps so so you know I, I thought that was a really interesting example of of openness moving on from there uh, I mean this has been really fun every CISO in Australia would would love to be able to interview the journalists that, are, that you know, and, and ask them questions from a cyber point of view, like, because you guys are genuinely, a lot of the time, first time someone comes across a journalist is the same way they come across a phishing attack, right? Something's gone wrong, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> they don't generally talk to you on their best day. Uh, but, you know, you did touch on one huge inequality of cyber is the incident response and forensics is very expensive. And, yeah, like the... Everything about what you said in the Philippine attack would be eminently investigatable, mm -hmm. but it would be incredibly expensive from, to get the expertise because there's a huge shortage of defendants, right? So there is this huge inequality is that banks claim to be secure, but their users get pilfered all the time like, because the user can't afford the same skill for the defence that the bank can afford, and so they monopolise the talent. And so you find that... DOD and large financial institutions become talent sinks uh, that, you know, small and small business can compete for nothing, right? And it's the same with you talking about getting access to good sources who tell you things. That's just as true of getting access to good knowledge when you've been under a cyber attack. Yeah. Anything else you want to you, you wanna leave? I think we've covered it all, Robert. Thanks for your time, Jamie. This has been really fun. Thank you for having me. We appreciate your time and know you'll be able to improve your security using the information from today. And remember, when you need the best security for your business, speak with us and get the solutions that only Internet 2.0 can provide.